Hello, I'm Brian Lobig, a Harley Davidson Fat Bob aficionado and criminal thinking change fanatic. You're listening to The Leftscape, The Shape of Progressive Conversations. I'm Wendy Sheridan, and this is The Leftscape, The Shape of Progressive Conversation. Hi, I'm Robin Renee, and Happy New Year. We are, yes, (laughs) we are very happy to be back after our winter break, and we've got a brand new theme for this season, which is season one of 2022. Wow, amazing that. We're going to be talking all about freedom, and in our featured interviews, we'll be looking at various aspects of the concept of freedom. Uh, how we experience it, struggle for it, and other topics. Um, a few of the questions we're asking just to start out are, you know, what does the word freedom evoke for you? Which types of freedom are most important to you? And what is the progressive contribution to our national conversation about freedom? And it's the, all very it, deep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think we're, I think it's going to be, uh, it's a good topic. It's so broad yeah. that there's just a lot of ways to, to look at it, you know. Indeed. And the first featured interview of the series we'll bring you today is with Brian Lobig. Brian is a digital marketing agency business owner and a former drug and alcohol counselor and criminal thinking therapist. So, you know, in this conversation, we talk about freedom from addiction and negative thought patterns that lead to problems in people's lives and in the lives of those around them. So um, looking forward to sharing that with you. Yeah. And uh, before we get to that interview, uh, we have a why is this awesome segment in which I will tell you about why the book, The Dawn of Everything by David Graeber and David Wengro is awesome, is fucking awesome. So I, I'm definitely looking forward to that. <laughs> I want to hear all about it. Well, you will, because you, <laughs> you're going to talk I about can't it. shut up about it. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody needs to read this book. But uh, before that, let's, uh, let's check in with each other. Uh, I haven't really talk to you a whole lot since i don't know <laughs> since like the holidays yeah we've had some planning texts and a few little yeah. planning things but yeah it's been uh we've been take we took a real break which was nice yeah. actually so what did you do for new year's did you do your thing your normal thing i officially know oh okay <laughs> <laughs> because there were so many question marks. There were people who weren't sure if they could make it or not and were sort of down to the wire and confused about what to do. And then, I, th- you know, and as, as you get away from sort of like your core people, yeah. then there are people that I'm like, are they, are they, are they, va-? I mean, I think, and I made sure people were vaccinated. That was like a hard rule, you know? Right. But then I was like, are they going to be being as responsible as I would hope? And it was just like, hmm, you know? Yeah. So I officially did not have a party. There were, there were a couple people very close to me who came over and we hung out, but it wasn't like, you know, it was, it's not time to do mm. a big thing. You yeah. Know? I know. But, I know. Omicron has basically turned me back into our hermit crab again. 
And yeah. <laughs> I mean, I did manage to stay up past midnight on New Year's <laughs> Eve. So I, I, I consider that to be an accomplishment because usually I, by 1030, I am unconscious. Wow. So. <laughs> you, yeah, you are the early to rise early to, yeah, what well, is it, early to bed, early to rise. Yeah. I have no idea. It's, yeah, <laughs> it's, I, it's the, yeah, I, because of uh, work habits from the past. And also now there are animals that if I am late, they start walking on me in the bed and meowing in my face. So <laughs> it's like I can't sleep late anymore. Well, so. That's why a friend of mine feeds her cats at night. I know. I, I just yeah. said, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I don't know how I got, I got on this schedule, but now I'm screwed because, uh, you know, I'm sure they'll eat at night. But in the morning, they're going, where's my goddamn? breakfast so. right but yeah so i i had a good holidays basically you know it was it was it's very good. quiet and um you know it was a little odd because i was definitely there are people who passed last year who are part of my holiday traditions mm. so it had to be it was going to be different oh, right you yeah, know yeah and uh and they, it was it was okay it was you okay. know just what it is you know I, I did a project. Well, my cousin really did a project, but we talked about it and discussed it and figured it out. But I have a piano bar now. <gasps> oh, okay. You converted your piano. You got it done. <laughs> yes. Oh, you have to post pictures. You have I to will. post pictures. It's super cool. I still have more to do on it, actually. I'm going to do some sanding and uh, staining and stuff like that. But, okay. But he figured I, out I how to take it. I can't wait to see it. Yeah, I had an old, it's a 1909 upright piano that's just been sitting forever. It wasn't really playable anymore. And now it's really beautiful and has a function. It's holding, <laughs> it's holding all my booze. <laughs> and it looks pretty cool. Cool. I'm, cool. I'm excited about that. Cool. Yeah. I, I look forward to someday drinking from it at some point. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. And just to keep you up to date on our episode schedule and our socials, uh, you can catch a new episode of The Leftscape every other Wednesday. And subscribe to the show on our website, leftscape.com, or find us wherever you get your podcasts. And make sure you sign up for automatic downloads so you don't miss a show. Um, we have been doing better. We're really psyched about our download numbers. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we're just uh, excited to keep that going and growing. Awesome. And you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Leftscape, and, and we appreciate when you do. And when you are on our website, check out our show notes and sign up for our monthly-ish newsletter, The Leftscape Lookout. And if you want to love us just a little bit more, leave us a review. We could use a few more five-star reviews over on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. So if you do like our show, and we really hope you do, please take a moment to let people know. Yes. And also, we have a Patreon so please join us over on Patreon for extra content. Becoming a patron helps us keep making this show better. Join us at any level, including the front row seats level at just $1 a month, and you will have the opportunity to join us for special patron-only hangouts or chats, and you can check out our bonus segment, We Should Be Recording This. Our January We Should Be Recording This exclusive Patreon segment is about uh, this, this season's theme, which is freedom. Yeah, I'm looking forward to diving into that a bit more with you. Awesome, yeah. And now it's time for three random facts and the news. Fact number one. Lee Highway, also known as Route 50, 
is formerly called the Washington Lee Highway, and it was the actual trail cut by George Washington and uh, the Lee that is not Robert E. Lee, but I think it's his grandfather or granduncle. It's the Lee that signed the Declaration of Independence, who was a like a colleague of George Washington. That is really interesting because I always assumed that was named for Robert E. Lee. Yeah, I know. I There's a lot of Lees. Yeah. There's a lot of Lees in Virginia. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'm sure they were all slave owners anyway. So, you know. There you go. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, really. Um, Laos has the highest sticky rice consumption per capita in the world with an average of 171 kilograms or 377 pounds of sticky rice consumed annually per person. Okay, that's over a pound a day. That's a lot of rice. That's a pound of rice a day. I, I, <laughs> that's a lot of rice. Uh, it, it, yeah, it's hard to. It's hard for me to quite get that into my mind. But hey, that's <laughs> what it said. Okay, so it's allegedly a fact. <laughs> and the third fact is the color and look of pokeballs were based on Campbell's soup cans. Okay, Which, that one is hilarious. I had no <laughs> idea, and I cannot unsee it now. It I so know, cool. <laughs> I can't unsee it now either. <laughs> I really but, love that. So whether it's like someone was really into soup, or they were into Andy Warhol, or whatever, it, it's uh, that's a pretty cool thing. Now I think I'm going to be required to do some Pokemon Andy Warhol art mashups now. That would be cool. You know, because <laughs> doy. <laughs> I, will, I will buy those. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We have a commission. I have a commit my first commission of 2022. <laughs> right. <laughs> so wow. you want the balls? You want the balls in the nine thing or you want Pikachu or just, all right, we'll talk about this. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. Uh, and here's, um, I do have to say over the, the winter break, I had, I had been assiduously avoiding the news. And as much as possible, just because, you know, it's been a long fucking six years. <laughs> and um, so here's the news that we can handle. <laughs> okay, the first item is, I guess, I'm hoping all of you have already know this, that the three assholes who murdered Oman Aubrey uh, got convicted of murder in the first degree. They all have life sentences and the father and son have a life sentence each with no opportunity for parole. So I was pleased to see that outcome from the trial. Yeah. I mean, I am not, I guess I don't have that whole like sort of punishment vengeance thing, but I have the, this cannot stand and we can't live in a culture where th that's okay to do yeah and they, and they have a feeling that may, you know maybe they just thought like oh i'm just gonna we're gonna shoot an n-word and it's all yeah. fine yeah you know? well, so it's you, not fine and well i mean they were gonna be not even arrested or prosecuted yeah. by the local i mean and there's all more there's more fallout like i believe the the local prosecutor resigned and is now being investigated for, I think, obstruction. Yeah. 
you know, because they weren't even going to do anything about it until until it got national media attention. And then the Georgia state prosecutor jumped in and said, what the fuck are you guys doing? We have to do something about this. Yeah. And it's also, I mean, the, the three that did this thought they were per- perfectly justified because they videoed it and, and released it. Themselves. Right. Yeah. No, that's what's really terrifying about it. And uh, and I know I've said before, like it's a situation that I could see myself being in, like going jogging and yeah, just somebody just somebody living their life, and then they just get yeah. killed just for that. It's insane. Yeah. It's it's scary. So and I, and I, I, I would say that this is an appropriate. Uh, yeah. I and I, and I'm hoping all other racist assholes uh, realize that they can't get away with this shit anymore. Yeah. So, um, hundred. <laughs> <laughs> um, now there are in France there are Afghan refugees and they're stuck in Calais, uh, which I think is you know on the shore of the English Channel because they want to get into into England into the UK. And the charities out there are saying that, you know, if they don't let these people go someplace, they're going to freeze to death because the temperatures are dropping. So that's a humanitarian crisis in France right now. Um, That's my international news from The Guardian. Uh, Oh, oh, I forgot I had it. Okay. I I hope uh, that the UK government will do something about this and let these people... uh, into their country and find something to be in besides a tent. Yeah, absolutely. I was, it just reminded me of those Canadian people who were stuck somewhere in Mexico. Is it? Are they? (laughs) It's so dumb. (laughs) (laughs) They're these like Canadian, like influencer people who just like partied it up on this plane, like to such an extent that no one wants to fly them back. I think they're in like Mexico. I can't, I, I don't. Oh, wow. But oh yeah, they yeah they flew from Montreal to Cancun, and all the carriers were just like yeah, because they were like vaping and drinking and on the plane on the plane just acting oh, like okay. complete assholes. Oh, so they so okay, so a bunch of people got did they get was that their destination? Or they got thrown off the plane. No, I think they got to their destination, but no one wants to take them back. But now they're on the no fly list because they were jerks. Right. Oh, okay. Wow. All right. I, I mean, <laughs> there's been a, there's been a, a huge uptick in in passengers behaving badly on the airplanes, and and they're banning, and the airlines are banning that all of these people. Right. You know, I mean, there was, the last one I read about was some drunk woman who assaulted a waitress or a waitress, a steward, a a, a flight attendant. A, thank you, God. <laughs> My brain is not where I'm not braining today. Yeah. She assaulted a flight attendant and then she was like, she was very, very drunk and the flight attendant wanted to cut her off and she like lost her shit about that. And she also was like molesting the male passenger sitting next to her. And then, yeah, I mean, (laughs) cause that's how drunk she was. And, and then, um, what happened? I think they moved. There was a there was a law enforcement person somewhere else on the plane, and they moved her next to that person, to the law enforcement person, like in cuffs, until they landed, and then she got arrested. So, yeah, and now she can't fly anywhere anymore. So wow. you know, that's <sighs> what booze does to people. Booze and <laughs> booze. <laughs> it's like you're obnoxious and you're drunk. It's like. Don't fly. 
please. Right. So I, I guess there's a bit of stupid news. <laughs> my my friend Ann and I have the uh, the Ass Hat of the Week awards that oh. we joke about. <laughs> okay, I would, I would say that Novak uh, Djokovic is the Ass Hat of the Week for deciding to try to go defend his title at the at the Australian Open without getting vaccinated. Oh. Okay. And they won't let him into the country as far as I can see. Like somehow he oh, thought, I thought he had he, a pass or something. I thought that he won his court case. It was I thought you were gonna talk about that. It's not even on the list here. Um Did he win his case? I don't know. I read something about it in The Guardian. I thought I thought they let him in. It was like on the front. Oh, page. it just happened fifty seven yeah. minutes ago. Oh, well, okay. <laughs> or at least according to or a couple hours. Breaking news. Novak Djokovic can remain in Australia, judge rules. Okay. Drug, Australian judge says Djokovic can stay, but saga not over. <laughs> that sucks. What, you didn't want him to play or you do want no, him? No, he's an asshole. Oh, okay. I mean, he's the number okay. one player. Like, if you're that, if, if you're the number one player, male player in the world, and you can't get a stupid vaccine to to defend your title, then don't fucking, uh, it okay. makes me mad. All I thought right. it was All an right. ass. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> we're not, I'm not going to talk about that either then. So it's fine because we don't know what's happening. <laughs> okay, here we go. Back to bad news. <laughs> so yeah, I, I want to just acknowledge the fires, the loss by fire that we've had um, kind of really close this to week. us. Yeah. 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 Um, in Philadelphia, there was a fire, um, killed sadly like eight children and a few yeah. adults really all from one family as far as i can see then they don't know what caused it but they think it might have been a, a young child playing with a lighter by the, oh, by really? the um, christmas tree really that's i thought small. it was i thought it was a, a heater thing uh, that's uh, new york new york city definitely it was a space heater right and there was a another large that was in broke that was in brooklyn yes and yeah, so I, I have, as Wendy said, I've been taking a bit of break from news, so I don't stay up to the minute on those kinds of local-ish tragedies, but those were really hard to miss, and I just wanted to say, you know, we uh, we acknowledge those losses, yeah. and that sucks. Yeah, know? and it's, and, it, and I, and that kind of stuff happens when it gets cold and, and, you know, the landlords are, don't have, you don't have heat in your apartment and you have to use other things to heat your house. Right. And, and, and a I'm, lot not, of, I'm generally not afraid of space heaters. I think they work a lot better than they used to, but yeah, they still, it depends on what condition they're in and how they're plugged in. If you, you know, their extension cords are, they tell you not to use them and everybody, and you know, everybody does. But yeah, uh, just be careful, everybody. Right. Absolutely. And um, this is a, about a life really, really well lived. So it's not a tragedy in that sense, but I do want to just say farewell and thank you and love for Sidney Poitier, who passed yeah. just a couple of days ago. Um, his, I, I just, I don't know. He's just done so many things. I'm just a little bit speechless. But when I think about, you know, guess who's coming to dinner and to start with love and all this. And the activism. Oh, and that, the activism. Uh, and just, that I didn't know about until people started posting about it after yeah. he died. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. He, he, I believe, was best friends with Harry Belafonte. And like, yes. together they were like, a that's a dream team of activism <laughs> and, and visibility there, you know? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, you know, I was talking to a friend about how it's it's kind of remarkable to think about when I was really growing up, there was not, there were very few black, visible black people like in magazines and oh yeah TV and just anywhere like in public life in a lot of ways. And, you um, could count them on the fingers of one hand. Exactly. <laughs> you know, and how that's changed when you just like walk around and go, oh, wow, that's, this is very different now. And um, so and he I'm was glad really at the forefront it. of that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, this is our last piece, and it's it's not sad. So, <laughs> which is why I'm wrapping it up with that. They recently found the largest ichthyosaur fossil in the UK. I don't know if it's the largest ichthyosaur fossil in the entire world, but it's the biggest one in the UK, and it's over ten meters long, and it is the most complete fossil that they have of these creatures that they found in the UK. And and they they also call them sea dragons, but uh I thought that was cool. Uh they haven't completely dug it up yet, but um if you read the read the article that we're going to link to in our show notes, you'll see a picture of it. It is big and it's an ichth ichthyosaur which are um like the artist renderings, they kind of look like dolphins but they're you know they're dinosaurs they're what gigantic water dinosaurs that would just eat you so wow exciting <laughs> i yeah. did not I, I don't have a picture in my head of what an ichthyosaur looks like so i'm going to look forward to seeing that in our show notes too actually yeah. writing the show notes and <laughs> by way of that i will see you yes. i'll see one so. okay and i think that is all the news we that are handling today all the news i can handle <laughs> God. <laughs> this podcast is sponsored by Feminism. Are you tired of conforming to gender norms that don't really fit who you are? Have you been frustrated in meetings by having others repeat what you just said and have the room react as if it's the first time they'd heard it? Are your loan rates higher and your salary lower than the guy sitting next to you in the office? Are you unable to express your emotions without being ridiculed? Maybe it's time to ask your doctor about feminism. Side effects might include empowerment, equal pay, respect, being seen, and being heard. Ask your doctor or therapist if feminism is right for you, or you can just decide for yourself. And now, back to our podcast. Why is this awesome? Welcome to Why Is This Awesome, our segment where one of us explains to the other of us why a thing is awesome. <laughs> that is very well defined. And you have something that you want to tell I me do. about that's awesome. I do. It? I do. I have this awesome book. It's called The Dawn of Everything, A New History of Humanity by David Graeber and David Wengro. And I believe... Uh, David Graeber passed away like days before this book was released. The guys were working on this for over 10 years and it shows it's, it, it's an enormous book. It's 692 pages, but 
200 or so of that is end notes and a bibliography and an index. So it's really only like 500 and something pages of very dense nonfiction, um, which I have read. It took me two months, but I read it the whole book. They basically look at the past 10,000 years of human history from a different perspective from what we have been taught in school when we take, you know, the history classes and we're like in the, in, you know, the fertile crescent and all of that stuff. And the premise of their book, I think they were looking for basically how we got where we are now, you know, like where did inequality come from? And, oh, and so like all the social issues, they're there's trying a, to see the yeah, origins of those? Yes, but they also talk about freedom quite a lot. So that's why it's getting thrown into, that's why I'm talking about it now. Okay. Um, so they define freedom, the primordial freedoms. There are three basic freedoms, and that's freedom of movement, freedom to disobey, and freedom to create new or transform current social relationships. And everything else kind of derives from that. At the beginning, they talk a lot about what they call the indigenous critique of Western civilization at the time. And that, and that came about through Jesuits talking to uh, a Wendat, uh, which is the, the actual name of, the Huron, of a Huron tribe, a Wendat tribal member named Candidiaronk. And I hope I'm pronouncing that right, but I have no idea. And where, um, where is this? And this is, this is like in the 16th century. Okay. Okay. This is a Jesuit priest. This is in America. The Jesuits are in the Canadian, you know, like in the Quebec area-ish, you okay. know, they so came in America. with the French okay. and they're, and, and I, I actually believe Candidiaronk actually went to Europe for a while. They took him back with them, but he basically you know, he's talking to the Jesuits. They're trying to explain who the Jesuits, by the way, were completely horrified about um, the amount of autonomy that women had in Native American society at the time. Um, Scandalous. And, uh, yeah. I mean, the, the sexual sure was, freedom was right, like right. freaking them the fuck out. So, so they're trying to convince the Native people that you know, Jesus is the thing and they should be Christian and they should, they should, you know, see how great we are with our technology and everything. And, and Ken Didieronk like is looking at all of this and, and he's going, you're full of shit, basically. I mean, he, he's way more eloquent. Yeah, so I was going to say, so what, you're full of shit is, is kind of a blanket critique. So what was his sort of <laughs> yes. actual critique? <laughs> um, no, I, and I'm not, and I didn't highlight that those pages in the book, so I can't like quote to you stuff. Um, okay. But the it's very, very, he, it's like, okay, the Iroquois, which is the Iroquois nations, which is like the blanket term for like the Wentat and the Haudenosaunee and, and another tribe that is extinct now. And actually the, the few remaining members after the slaughter got kind of absorbed in the Haudenosaunee. Uh, peoples. Okay. So um, there's there's like some information that we have about them, but not a lot. I mean, some of these tribes are kind of still with us in some form or other. But they're they like their their tribal leaders could 
suggest, you know, could give orders, but you didn't have to obey them. And there was no way for them to force anybody to do what they said, which that was the first little revelation in this book I'm reading and going, holy shit, really? And I thought that was like kind of amazing. That, that so it's more like guidance as opposed their to- Their society said, well, you know, I think we should harvest the corn now. And, you know, people would say, yeah, that makes sense. And they would do it. Or if they didn't agree with it, they didn't do it. And there wasn't anything they, that the leaders could do about it, hmm. you know? So these guys had everything they needed to live and be happy. And, and they were, and later in the book, I discovered that the North American continent to the native peoples um, is called Turtle Island. I've that's heard that. The name I mean, I've of heard North that America. name, and I didn't really know what it referred to. Oh, well, and, that, and that's how I'm going to refer to North America from now on because I think that's <laughs> cool as shit. So, anyway, in Turtle Island, a person in in a in one of the clans could go anywhere and be welcomed by other clan members that they they're not necessarily related to, but it was this whole network of of thing you know areas that you could you could just go anywhere and be kind of guaranteed a, a place to sleep. And, mm -hmm. and people to feed you, you know, we do. And it's like these three basic freedoms. We don't really have that anymore. We don't really have any of that anymore. I mean, we do uh, on a limited level and, and they kind of trick us into thinking that we have these freedoms. Mm -hmm. And what if you have one again, uh, freedom to create new or transform current social relationships. Right. Okay. That I mean, we are cool. kind of seeing a little bit of that. And and the social relationships, I think they're specifically speaking about is how we organize our societies. Mm -hmm. And and the other thing, one of the other main things in this book is, you know, when we were in school, uh, we were taught the evolutionary theory of civilization. You know, right. like we were all, you know, in the before the ice age, we were all hunter gatherers and then we started farming and then we built cities and then taxes and right. Or, and with the know, with the assumption that each step is better a better step. Yeah. And yeah. and they completely turn that on its head in this book. And they give you really good concrete examples of why that is not how things worked. And you know, and how what do they call them? Monumental societies, which is groups that built monuments like Stonehenge, for example. And there's a bunch of things like that in like Anatolia, like in the Fertile Crescent in the like the Mesopotamian region. There's mm -hmm. some stuff, I think, off of the Euphrates somewhere that there were monument builders who were not farmers and they were not they weren't doing any of that stuff. They were like hunter gatherers and they put these things up for their leaders or whatever. And they're, they're, they talk about different burials and, and how in a certain time frame, like five, 6,000 years ago, they would be, they would find these grave sites of um, exceptional individuals. Like they would either be, you know, <clears throat> they would have like dwarfism or some other, other deformity and they would be in these graves with a lot of fancy stuff. So these people were considered, I don't know, they, you know, they're not sure exactly, you know, why this happened. It's, it, it was either, you know, when they find these graves like that with all this 
expensive stuff from far away. They figured like the person is like a king or, or, a or they were revered or in some way as opposed yeah. to shunned. Should say. Exactly. That's the yeah, yeah. impression. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. So that, <clears throat> that was something else they were talking about in there. But anyway, when Candidiaronk went to Europe and also the Jesuit who inter was talking with him, okay, that was another thing I did, did not, I neglected to mention that the Wendat people and the other people of the Iroquois confederacies, they would, they spent a lot of time with political discourse. Hmm. And, and, and one of the, they liked to talk politics and they were really good about it and they were erudite about it. And even when the Jesuit was writing about it, trying to couch it in terms that made it negative, the philosophers in Europe used it basically as their foundation for the enlightenment and all of the enlightenment philosophers. Uh, so that, you know, and that's, and that's also with the life, liberty and pursuit of happiness that we were talk, you know, that, that our founding fathers were talking about is really some kind of version of this mm -hmm. and how that happened. And then they go into a lot of other early civilizations, how King it's like, it's like even in, in, in North America on Turtle Island, there was a time where there was a city in what is now East St. Louis. I guess that's the confluence of a couple of rivers there. There was like a pretty big city and a surrounding area. And, and that was there for a few hundred years. And then for some reason, it was abandoned and nobody lived in that area for a while. So it's like they rejected some kind of authoritarian system and put other things in place so that wouldn't happen again for example. So, so there have been, and how do they know that that's, uh, well, they, the there's, there's, re they have reasons. There was like a temple and a palace or, you know, stuff okay. that they think are, are those kind of places. And they right. got, and, in, and, and they were building, um, it had to do also with mount the mound building in that area and in Ohio. And some of this stuff were, were like big networks that were covering various regions and, and like certain pyramid shapes that would have like a, a temple or a meeting house on top of it. Yeah. Like your energy dome. <laughs> <laughs> but like at some point they, they see, they see things that could be, you know, councils where, where the adult, where a bunch of people would gather together and have a more um, consensus based operation. Um, there are also things like, and and this happened all over the world um, in different places, and they and they were talking like about Stonehenge and a lot of these monument places where people gather at certain times of the year for certain rituals. And during those times, when there's five six thousand people and they're they're like either putting up a monument or they're doing a thing, there's suddenly there's a hierarchy. There's like a, a temporary king or a temporary leader who for that per for that particular time and that particular purpose, there's a hierarchy. And then when that's done, everybody just goes off to their homes and everybody's like doing their own thing when they don't have any leaders anymore. For that's the rest actually of the year. fascinating because it's like, we don't need that kind of top down thing. No, for most we don't. things. And then other times it's super helpful because yeah. consensus is a good, is a wonderful thing, but, you and I know it, it can get bogged down. 
yes when you're trying yes. to do something you know very specific so that's and, uh, yeah i and and it's and it's interesting you know it's like and and like the plains indians would get together um I think around the winter solstice for like the big Buffalo hunt or something like that. But the rest of the time, it's like they're very small groups of people like doing whatever they're doing. So the book is really about how humans are de developed inequality and hierarchies and, and a new way of looking at the last 10, last 10,000 years of our history. And a lot of it was like really revelatory to me. Okay, they also talk about there's a lot of things that are that we don't really have the words for, like like civilization doesn't, you know, like when we're talking about it, like lay people and when sociologists or archaeologists are talking about it, it means different things and how people define the term state as in like a country or something like back in the, you know, in in pre-modern times because now we kind of understand what a state i mean we have a definition for state now you know like the united states or england or france or you know thailand or something like that that's a state okay and even um, though it's a na it's a country it's a nation, a nation yeah yeah well that's state. what they're talking about we, state yeah, is, is state is, yeah i know sometimes interchangeably yes yeah. yes okay. um so they're talking about state in those terms, except that when you go back in time, you know, what are you talking about? What needs to be there for that? And they were saying there's three things. There's knowledge, like knowledge, like you can concentrate knowledge in, in like a priest, a priesthood or, um, you know, it, you know, there's there's like the the, the knowledge that some that you can withhold or or dispense, and that gives you power, or um, what they what they were calling um, like a hero thing. Um, it's like the warrior hero, where it's a competitive, uh, where you're like the the quarterback in the football in a football game, mm -hmm. and and that gives you certain advantages or or privileges in a, in a society. So and, it's the uh, one that people look up to or look to for direction, I guess. Yeah, and that's kind of, you know, that's that's like the king, the warrior king or the, you know, the the clan leader kind of thing. And and then that and that would be you would get to that position, you know, either by, you know, doing being good in war, being a war leader or or like in uh Mesoamerica if you are one of the champions at one of their their games. You know, there's a lot of societies in the past that would pick their leaders actually by who won a game so that there's that aspect. And then there's the bureaucracy and there were, and they're talking about civilizations that would have one of those things or two of those things and how those, and how certain combinations of those kind of lend themselves to these hierarchies where, where suddenly you've got um, uh, peons or slaves, uh, you know, basically a class structure mm -hmm. where, where you've got, you know, um, and some of it was like, they were giving examples like in, on the West coast of, of Turtle Island, uh, in the Pacific Northwest, you had, um, the tribes where there would be, they did hold slaves and they did have, and the, and these slaves would usually be capt captives from, uh, from wars or battles or raids. They would take people and, and force them to work in, you know, for, for whatever reason. 
And then south of that, there was this area where people, where the, the groups, like in Northern California, was sort of this, um, they completely rejected the slavery and, 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 uh, but the, the leaders would, would be giving out a lot of gifts to the, to their, to their tribe, like in these big feasts and the, and the, the way you get status is by, you know, having bigger and bigger parties, basically. I mean, I'm kind of simplifying things here. Um, but going, <clears throat> and then there's this, um, what did they call it? Schismogenesis where you'd have another group of people that like reject everything these, the first group is doing and they're doing the opposite. So there's this group like bordering the, the Northern party tribes. This is, I'm really, really simplifying this. And they were very ascetic, ascetic, you know, they didn't, they didn't have a lot of, you know, fancy artworks or totem poles or any of that stuff. They didn't have slaves. They didn't do any of that stuff. And they were living very, simple lives and very you know basically ascetic lives and not and just kind of doing their thing mm -hmm. and then south of that were a bunch of other groups of people who didn't live like either of those two groups they were just you know doing something else and and there was a lot of different uh ways that people organized themselves into societies throughout history and it seems by the time I got to the end of the book, I could kind of blame the Romans for why we're the way we are. Hmm. And, um, and that had to do with what they we definitely do take a lot from them for sure. Well, it's the Roman law. Hmm. Roman law made a citizen, a citizen. It basically dehumanized everything, everyone that wasn't a citizen. It turned them all into property. Oh, okay. And the citizen could do whatever the fuck they wanted to with their property. And their property included their wives, their children, their slaves, their house, and physical things that were that's, that's actually kind of a revelation because I think people look up to the the organization like the governmental organization. Right. But right. that's like the underbelly of it, you know. Yes. Anyway, uh, that's why this is awesome. <laughs> that it sounds like an awesome book. I would definitely like to um i would like to read it it's a huge it looks huge i'll loan it to you <laughs> but it looks like something that's worth learning more about i don't have room on my shelf for it so i'll loan it to you but i do want it back at some point so <laughs> oh yes sure <laughs> yo what up this is the poet known as analysis and you're listening to the leftscape the shape of progressive conversation this is what you need don't miss an episode All right. Well, I am very happy to welcome Brian Lobig to The Leftscape. Uh, Brian Lobig is an enthusiastic small business owner, entrepreneur, teacher, and speaker who loves to share his knowledge with groups large and small. He has extensive expertise in social media marketing, search engine optimization, and online advertising, and is a sought-after speaker and presenter on those topics. Brian also comes from a large family that is very eclectic and diverse, and it really gives him a unique perspective on business partnerships and networking. Um, but in this interview, we are most interested in Brian's experience as a former drug and alcohol counselor 
and criminal thinking therapist. So welcome, Brian. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah, it's really awesome to talk to you. And first of all, I just in, in interest of full disclosure, <laughs> I have to say that I know Brian for a long time, like well over a decade now. Um, I do a lot of work with Brian for his company, Lobig Inc., and mostly in SEO. Uh, but Brian is also a musician. And we met when he was booking the Fifth Street Coffee House in Philadelphia. Uh, I got a call from him saying he was seeking a female African-American folk artist which is not a call I got every day. So that was really <laughs> exciting. <laughs> and uh, so it's been great to know you all these years and to work with you too. So welcome. This is very uh, cool. It was back in the days of India Irie too. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, so the broad topic that we're exploring this season on the Leftscape is freedom. And when I mentioned this to you, the first thing you thought about was your work as a drug and alcohol counselor and how that work is really about helping people find freedom from addictions. So how did you find yourself on that path to do that kind of counseling? Drug and alcohol counseling was like my first profession. That was like the first thing that um, I did after working in fast food, you know, work going through college. Uh, so I, I have a bachelor's degree in uh, psychology from Marquette University. And the first job, um, probably my senior year in college, I was working at a women's uh, correctional halfway house. So it was women uh, struggling with uh, alcohol and drug addiction, um, and they were also in the criminal justice system. And so I was actually the first male that they employed at the halfway house. And I was, I grew up in the suburbs. So working with uh, adult women um, going through drug addiction and who had criminal histories was a whole new world for me. Like the learning about that whole kind of um, subculture, subcriminal culture, as well as crime and prostitution and addiction was just fascinating to me. It was like a whole new world. Um, and so I really fell in love with the process of helping people change their lives and, you know, becoming free from alcohol addiction, changing their, their thinking patterns so that they don't repeat those harmful patterns in their life. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So um, just a little bit about your background. Uh, you grew up in, I want to say, I don't, I, I don't want to guess. Do you tell me? <laughs> uh, I was born in Iowa, but I grew up in Wisconsin. Okay. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. So it was sort of just a different, you weren't, you weren't really exposed to things like that, I guess. Is that what you're no, saying? No, no. Sort of like my, my dad was a hospital administrator. We grew up in uh, Brookfield, Wisconsin, which is the suburbs of Milwaukee. And so I was pretty, you know, we were pretty, before that I, we were in Northern Wisconsin and uh, my family is very big and diverse. So we're, we're like, my family was like, with like one of the, had the only black kids in the family. Um, and so we, you know, we thought people were looking at us when we went into a restaurant because we were a lot of kids, but it was because we were culturally diverse, actually. Oh, right, right. Well, yeah. So, so you went from there to, to this type of work. Could you share a few guiding principles about the type or just the type of program you were working with at the time? I was, I was really interested, like I, when I got the uh, bachelor's degree in psychology, I really wanted to do something with that degree um, before having to go. Usually with a psychology degree, you need to get a master's degree before you can do anything professional. Um, but I was able to, these correctional halfway houses were seeking people even just with a bachelor's degree. And then the drug and alcohol uh, certification process is really not a degree, degree, a degreed process. You go through, I went actually through a uh, the Milwaukee Area Technical College to get certified as an alcohol and drug addiction counselor. 
And so that didn't require a college, you know, a degree. So I, I was kind of ahead of the big game actually with a college degree in psychology. Um, but it went, you know, become became an alcohol drug counselor through the technical college. And then I really, I just really enjoyed the, 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 the process, the stories, the, the, the you know, the looking at a seeing and helping people, uh, seeing people from a whole different culture, a whole different lifestyle, a whole different subculture, and how they, you know, how that whole process worked. It was just like a, a real learning experience for me. I just kind of uh, fell in love with the whole process of, um, you know, the diversity in the world and in people and how they can, you know, get to that point of their life where they're, you know, going to prison or jail and they're using drugs to, you know, um, as, a, as an outlet or whatever. Mm-hmm. So were you having conversations with people? Were you pre- prescribing particular programs or? Well, when like, I first started, how, I was just, yeah, how does it work? I was really just like a, a monitor, like a, like a house monitor. So like there'd be two of us, it was a residential treatment program. So a halfway house um, in the inner city of, of Milwaukee. And they would be going through uh, drug and alcohol substance abuse treatment programs, criminal thinking therapy programs in the actual home there, like in the, in the facility there, it was like a, I can't remember exactly, maybe 12 bed facility, residential facility. And I was, um, I was kind of like a counselor in training. So I had some senior supervisors, you know, counselors that would kind of uh, work with me. I'd sit in on groups and learn how to do group counseling, um, how to do drug and alcohol counseling. Um, I would, I would, you know, started shadowing other counselors on um, individual sessions, creating treatment plans and that whole, that whole process. But initially the first year is just mostly observing and learning kind of by watching and just, you know, talking, you know, talking to the women, um, eventually there was also a men's halfway house that I started uh, working at as well. So there's, you know, sister, you know, brother and sister kind of programs within Milwaukee there. Mm-hmm. And I started working my way up. So that was my first job. And uh, I really, I really enjoyed, you know, that whole process of being in uh, a substance use counselor. And so I started working my way up into the, um, into the organization. It w- the organization was a Lutheran Social Services of Wisconsin, Upper Michigan. It's the largest nonprofit in the state of uh, in the state of Wisconsin, and uh, they had quite a few. They had large contracts with the Department of Corrections, Department of Probation and Parole, providing uh, these programs were like alternatives to incarceration. For example, like um, the the courts would like sentence them to uh, um, give them the opportunity to go through a drug treatment program, like at the halfway house, as an alternative to going to prison. Um, to try to get help for their addiction and, and their criminal thinking. And so um, I, so that was, so it was a quite a large program. They had, um, there was a series of halfway houses. There was um, actually Lutheran Social Services purchased a, uh, sub, a, treat, a substance abuse hospital. Um, and so there, then it was like a full inpatient services, like in a hospital setting, there was um a detox center there. Then there was like, um, there's the halfway houses, then there's the outpatient programs. And eventually I kind of worked my way around and got involved with everything and, and, and kind of worked my way up as until I became a, uh, a halfway house uh, manager. Um, and then I became a director of correctional treatment programs eventually after a few years mm-hmm. for, for all of Southeastern Wisconsin, um, including like domestic violence programs and really kind of the full spectrum of, of treatment services and addiction treatment, the whole kind of spectrum of, of those services. 
And then I, that's, and then I decided because I was, I was getting more into administration at that point instead of direct service, I decided to go, um, go back to school and then get my master's degree from Marquette where I got my undergraduate degree in, uh, in business administration. I see. Okay. So did you ever, like, if you, if you were like in the role of talking to someone or working them through a particular experience or day or how, like, did you do that type of like specific counseling, individual counseling with anyone? Yes. So we actually learned an approach to counseling was very unique. It was called criminal thinking therapy. It was based on the works of uh, Dr. Stanton, Samanow, and Yokelson. Um, They actually have written several authoritative books on criminal personality. And so the approach is based on the cognitive behavioral psychology approach to change. If you change your thinking, you can change your behavior. It's very, it's pretty controversial back then too, because it's pretty, it's, um, it's not insight based. It's not looking at your family history. It's really looking at your thinking, um, and identifying the errors in your thinking so that you can change them. And so it was, it was pretty, um, uh, in your face kind of therapy, like helping people identify, you know, their thoughts as either being like, like, for example, one of, one of the criminal thinking errors, um, that we would help people identify and change is the closed channel thinking. And closed channel thinking is involved with being uh, not not disclosing anything, um, not not being receptive to anyone. Um, and so when you have that in your mind, if you're not disclosing, you're not receptive, you're not self-critical, uh, then there's no way to change. And so when we would do group sessions, uh, we got really good at doing uh, group sessions and helping people identify those patterns in their thinking. And it's not just in one area of their life that kind of closed channel thinking kind of spans all different areas and aspects of their, of their life, their family, their relationships, their, um, their business that with, with their work. Um, they're very say, secretive. Um, they don't say anything about themselves. They try to collect information on other people and learn, you know, how they can get over on people, but they don't, they share very little about themselves. And so by helping them identify that thinking error, for example, we then we identify ways to change that pattern. So instead of not being self-critical, being self-critical. Instead of not disclosing things, disclosing things. Disclose what's going on in your mind and helping them um, really reverse the patterns. It's almost like the mirror opposite. And so that was another thing I really enjoyed, like through the group process, through individual counseling, how to identify those common thinking errors and patterns in people's lives, and then helping them, showing them a way that they can change those and giving them the opportunity to do that. Oh, it's just, it's really life-changing. It's why I continue to have involvement in it. I I have a website that I still maintain as a free resource for people in, um, that do work with people in in corrections called criminalthinking.net. I'm on the board of directors for a uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin nonprofit that does offender reentry programs. Because it's uh, it's just such uh, I've just seen people change their lives so drastically, but by going through that process, and it's and it's fun to, to be to know I've had uh, some some hand in helping people, you know, put, put it, holding up a mirror to themselves, and then showing them, you know, this is not who you want to be. This is not who you know you are meant to be. Mm-hmm. What what are some of the other principles of the criminal thinking? Uh, so, so another one, so that was like, that's one of the thinking errors is closed channel thinking. Another common one is victim stance, um, blames everyone for problems they cause themselves. Now you might think, well, my brother is the same way. He's always blaming somebody else for, uh, for things that happened in his life. The difference between like your brother and somebody who is an extreme criminal thinker would be, um, the extent and pervasiveness of that error. So that, that victim stance, blaming others for things you caused yourself is real again it kind of spans every a major area of your life from your family to your relationships to your job to your personal to um 
it, it's just really pervasive. And so uh, they like in order to stay in the criminal and drug addicted lifestyle, you really there's a there's a continual blaming of everyone except yourself. So, you know, the reason I'm the reason I committed that crime was because um, X, Y, Z, a hundred reasons of why you committed it. And so what we help people is identify the fact that they're blaming others. And then we, you know, the opposite of that is blaming yourself. What response, what could you have done differently? Why, you know, you're going back to the individual choice and then, and then showing them that thread through all the different areas of their life and through their thinking that you're, that, that it's not just related to that single crime. It's really related to your everyday life and your everyday responsibilities. And, and when you're doing that in a residential treatment setting, it's really easy to show people how that's a pattern. Like when they wake up in breakfast, when they blame somebody for not putting the dishes away, when they blame somebody for not coming to group on time, if we can really show that thread that's, that's, that's really kind of a pattern in, in everything they do and then helping them change that. Mm-hmm. Another one, there's like, there's a whole bunch of these thinking errors. Um, another one would be like a lack of effort. They're unwilling to do anything disagreeable. They only want to do the things the easy way. Um, and, and so a lot of these thinking errors, um, you know, people have them in general. Like you occasionally, I lack effort in getting up in the morning because I worked late. Um, but the difference, again, the difference between there's kind of a continuum of criminality in these thinking errors from extreme lack of effort to, you know, occasional, you know, laziness, you know, that's, and the way it becomes a criminal thinking error is how it affects major areas of life, how you use that lack of effort to, um, to do anything that's, uh, responsible. So you're, you're committing crimes because you don't want to hold down a regular job. It's much easier just to go, um, hide, you just rob somebody for a couple thousand dollars. And then you've got your money for the, for the next couple weeks, as opposed to having to go to work every day, nine to five, very boring. Hmm. So I'm having some trouble seeing, I mean, I know that sometimes people who have addictions can also wind up in criminal situations and, and committing crimes and harm people and things like that. Um, I'm not sure that I see a complete continuum between someone who has a personal problem with alcohol or, or a drug and someone who's out really robbing people or doing, you know what I mean? I don't know. I, I'm not sure that I see that connection. I think also sex work can be a choice that is a reasonable choice. And it could also be a de- a, an act of desperate. It just really depends on someone's situation. But do you, do you see that as a continuum also, like, especially between someone who drinks too much at home, but holds on their, to their job. And then why, you know, just at some point needs to recognize that they want to really release alcohol or, or whatever drug and someone who's like, someone who's been to prison for example or or is that or you were were you working with like the just the more um intense cases i guess when they get to the programs that i was working with they're pretty um they're it's a it's pretty extreme at that point like a lot of um alcoholics say they've hit bottom which is what caused them to go go into a 12-step program or or caused them to want to go into treatment it's and it's really similar it's a very similar process in my opinion to the the criminal part of that. So somebody um, goes to jail. Like the reason they're coming into my program, the program I was involved with is because they either went to jail or prison. And the only way they're going to get out is if they come through this program. And by the time somebody gets to prison, it's not the first time that they've done anything wrong. 
It's not like, oops, they just did something bad just by accident. That's what they'll tell you when they come in the program. Oh, it was just the first, it was my first arrest. You know, I'm not a bad person. Um, that's another thinking or viewing yourself as a good person. It was just the, my first arrest. I'm really not a bad person. There's nothing wrong with me. The, but the problem with that thinking is they don't talk about the 200 times that they never got caught for the same thing they just recently got caught for. Um, hmm. the, um, the fact that they were able to, um, that they, they were boosting, you know, they were shoplifting, boosting us thinking term. Uh, they were shoplifting uh, for, you know, the last five years of their life. They were pretty good at it until they finally got caught. Um, and so we talk about, you know, it's about how it's, how the pattern of those things, you know, have gotten them to where they are. Um, th there's a real tendency and we tend to, I, in the, that process, we tend to um, really emphasize and almost over-exaggerate the, um, the problems that it's caused in their life because they're so used to minimizing everything. Like it's not really that big of an issue. I just had a couple of drinks. Um, I only hit my wife once and then she called the police. It wasn't a big deal. But if you look at the pattern of their behavior, especially domestic violence situations, it's just the first time that um, they actually got caught. Somebody called the police on them, but they've been abusing their, their spouse or their, um, their significant other for years. And it starts off, you know, it, it's a gradual kind of thing. It usually starts off with emotional abuse and eventually graduates to physical abuse, mental abuse, um, controlling what they do, controlling where they go, controlling who they see. And it, it just kind of starts getting, you know, worse and worse. And, and the, the kernel thinking tendency is to say, well, I've never, I never actually hit her. You can do more um, psychological damage on somebody if you don't hit them, if you're just doing, you know, you're just trying to, you're just manipulating them and getting, putting fear in them for wanting to leave, for example. Sure, sure. So that I'm interested in that tenet of criminal thinking philosophy that says that, you know, your actions are your own and there's nobody else's fault. And I can't disagree with that, you know. Um, but at the same time, I, I think that, you know, we do have to own our own actions. But at the same time, I think about... I, I think there's value in exploring family patterns and socially social economic issues, things that are factors that make up someone's environment. Absolutely. So I know that the, that particular way of, of working that program doesn't really include that. So it does I, not include that at all. So, right. and there's, and so I wonder how, what you think about that. How can you, can you combine uh, those things? Is, are there ways to, not, not when you're dealing with extreme criminal thinkers. So in my experience, as soon as you let in the opportunity of, well, you know, you did have a, a hard upbringing and you did have, um, you know, a family history of, of abuse. Um, the problem with that kind of uh, approach with somebody who's in to extreme criminal thinking and, and harmful behavior is that, that that's the uh, that's the excuse. Those the, that's the excuse they'll use to not change, to continue their their patterns. And so we don't allow them in this this kind of approach to, to use those excuses. We really go to the other extreme and let them hold themselves totally accountable to themselves until they can change the, that pattern of thinking of everything is not my fault and I'm not going to change because I'm not in control of it. They need to start get, seeing themselves as responsible, as in control, as the ones who caused all these problems for themselves because then they can reach the point of, if I caused it for myself, I can cause myself to get out of it. And then, in my opinion, that's when they're more when they get to that point of changing those regular patterns of um, victim stance, then they can, um, then they can get into more traditional programs of looking at the family history of, 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 you know, what th things that might've caused from their past or those, those kind of issues. But to do that um, on the front end is not, does not work with this population um, of, of people. The, the best, it's really, if you look, 
uh, look at the studies with this kind of population, the cognitive behavioral approach to change um, with this population, it has the best success, the best success rate. Um, I, I have plenty of anecdotal stories of uh, people that I've worked with, including um, the executive director of the of the nonprofit that I work with now was a former um, uh, criminal drug addict, um, was in prison for 15 years and uh, totally changed his, you know, totally changed his uh his lifestyle through that process of really holding himself accountable, seeing how he's responsible, responsible to be able to make those changes, how he um, caused the, the things in his life. It, it's not for this, in this approach, um, looking at the, the cause, you know, what caused you to um, get into this behavior. It is, we, we find it is, um, I, it's most helpful when you see the cause as yourself, as opposed to the society or something around you. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so tell me a couple of success stories. I know a little bit about the, the person you're talking about. Um, do you, yeah. Tell, I mean, I would like to hear a little bit more about that. So how has, how have you seen lives change? I guess I could say. Um. There's, there's, uh, the, the cool thing about it is that like every day you can see incremental changes when you're going through this kind of program, seeing somebody, you know, take responsibility for, um, for their actions and and then making amends, you know, make actually doing something by saying, okay, I'm responsible. I could have done something different. And then this is what I need to do different, differently to stay out of it. There's just, um, the, you know, the, the story I like to give is my, is, uh, is Tony, Tony Moore from the executive director of uh, birds of a feather program. Um, he, I actually knew him, um, when he had kind of finished going through the change process. So he had just got out of prison. Uh, he had went through the, a criminal thinking therapy kind of program in prison in Wisconsin. And he came out and was on probate or parole actually. And I started working with him in the Kenosha and Racine County jails. And, um, we would do, since he went through this whole program of identifying these thinking errors, for himself and then changing his own way of thinking in life. A lot, you know, mo- a lot of drug and alcohol counselors or therapists have been there themselves. They're recovering themselves. They've been in prison and jail themselves. Mm-hmm. For me, I was not, I've never been, well, I shouldn't say that. I should say I've never been in jail, but uh, I didn't go through that whole path. <laughs> oh, um, now this sounds like I, there's stories I don't know, <laughs> but that's cool. Yeah, it was actually, that was a question I was going to ask you. Like I'm not recovering Did- from alcohol and drugs. I consider myself recovering from abuse. Like I, I grew up in a, in a family where, um, you know, we, we think of like spankings and that kind of thing is not abusive. But um, when somebody is hitting you in anger, if a parent is hitting you and they're angry or they're upset with you, that's abuse. Um, and so um, I had that, I had that same, so my parents passed that down to me and I had that same pattern in me. And so I, I, t- I always tell uh, group members, um, that I feel like I'm recovering from from abuse, from that kind of that abusive kind of uh, lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, I never went to alcohol and drugs. I never became an alcohol and drug addict, um, but I definitely have am recovering and have gone through the change process with these thinking errors. You know, blaming other people for the reason that I get upset or was hitting other people. I would hit my 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 sisters. Like my older sister has stories of us getting in fights and me like fighting her and, and hitting her. That's, wow. it's not okay. <laughs> you know? Yeah. 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 Um, and, and me going through that change process myself, um, there's, uh, 
I learned, I was, I was my, I feel like my, my own process of change is, is a success story of, of identifying that ha- that pattern of uh, abusiveness in myself and then seeing it for myself, seeing I'm getting control and then changing my thought process and changing my behavior. Right. I'm glad that you were able to do that. And it isn't it's interesting that you were able to then look back and see that that was also something in your family line that you were able to recognize and make mm-hmm. it make it different, you know, yep. that's for your family. That's really good. Um, so if anyone is listening to this interview now who is starting to come to terms with addiction or a behavior pattern that they're ready to change, what what is the best first step for them to take? Hmm. Great question. There's such a, a, a multitude of resources in, the, in this day and age, like back when I was going through those programs, uh, the internet, Al Gore had just invented the internet back then. And so there was, <laughs> there was very little available at your fingertips. Now with everything digital, you can get therapy on your phone. So I would say um, Google it. Google like uh, how to get how to get help. Google's really good at, uh, at organic searches and giving you relevant results. <laughs> I knew you'd bring it back to SEO somehow. <laughs> That's funny, but it's true. I mean, I think that makes sense. Like people, we kind of have a really powerful tool in most of our pockets, you know, mm-hmm. and you can find and help. So. Like Psychology Today, for example, is an amazing resource. Um, it is the number one ranked um, therapy platform for therapists, psychologists, uh, it it is if you're if you're searching for anything therapy related, uh, psychology day is going to be on page one in search results for anything related to coaching, therapy, psychology, psychiatry, and they're they continually improve that platform. So if you're looking for help with antisocial behavior, um, any kind of personality disorder you can think of, or you don't even know the right word for it, you guess what it is, and it'll figure out you know what you're actually asking for. Um, there's there you're going to be able to find therapists like all over the entire country that specialize in everything anyone any um socioeconomic cultural background ethnicity um gender diversity you're going to be able to find a therapist um who has that that will be able to connect with you from your perspective um there's Mm -hmm. there's so many other resources um better help um there's a Pretty much anything you're going to see, like when you search those terms, the, what you're going to see on page one of Google, there's lots of free, low cost, you know, sources of therapy. One thing that I, I've I discovered, um, it's making me think of um, one of my colleagues uh, in uh, uh, who does app, who works with Apple products. Um, he's an Apple master, but he he runs a uh, a local um, self help organization. Like everybody's heard of the twelve step. Uh, like AA and NA and Narcotics Anonymous, Cocaine Anonymous. There's an, but they they tend to subscribe to the twelve steps, which is a kind of a spiritually based kind of program. Some people aren't um, very sp- kind that. of specifically Christian, actually. It yeah, seems. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, and so there's a there's another uh, resource uh, available for people that are kind of aren't in tune with that spiritual Christian kind of based change program, and it's called Smart Recovery. Uh, and that, that's, um, it's very, it's, I love it because it's cognitive behavioral based and it's based on changing your thinking patterns. Um, they don't get into criminal thinking errors. Um, they get into more like just, you know, thinking errors and, um, you know, changing your thoughts to change your behavior and very similar supportive atmosphere, but doesn't have that kind of spiritual or, or religious, um, bent to it. So that's a uh, smartrecovery.org. I believe it is, is a fantastic resource. 
Mm-hmm. Well, that's cool. It's really, it's good to talk with you about this. I have known about this part of your work for a long time, but haven't really delved into it a whole lot with you in some ways. So it's, yeah. it's good to hear more about it. And um, I'm just glad that you've been able to help people find, you know, some freedom, be it psychological or, uh, you know, behavioral, whatever. Um, and criminal freedom. And criminal free, criminal freedom. <laughs> Wait, that sounds a little odd, but I know what you mean. <laughs> yes. Freedom so, from criminal thinking. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for talking with me, Ryan. Welcome. Thanks for the opportunity. All Thanks right. for asking me. You got questions? We got answers. <laughs> and this one, we've had this question for a while and we didn't really quite know how to answer it, but I feel like it's kind of relevant because of recent events. Anne Sabah asks us, who's your favorite golden girl? Well, what? that is a very interesting question because I don't think I've watched an entire episode of that show. <laughs> <laughs> I, I kind of remember there's four women. <laughs> Was it four or five? I don't even know. Three. There's three? three I, I thought there were four. There's okay. Four? No, see, I don't, I don't now. All right. This is bad because <laughs> I thought I knew that. <laughs> I'm going to look it up right now. Okay. <laughs> because this is how little we know about gold girls. Betty White, B. Arthur, Rue McClanahan. And someone else. Oh, Estelle and then there was, Getty. Estelle Getty. And then there was another one, wasn't there? Like somebody's mother? Oh, she wasn't a regular. I don't Maybe. even know. But the, but you're right. The, the, it's a four, it's four ensemble cast. B. Arthur, Betty White, Rue McClanahan, Estelle Getty. Okay. The show is about four older women who share a home in Miami. Okay. Maybe I should watch it now. I don't know. I probably, <laughs> I probably appreciate it now than when I was 20. So. Right. <laughs> I was forgetting the fourth, the fourth one. That's so funny. I, I, I guess you know. I, I think B. Arthur's cool. Betty White, I always liked, and and I just have to say, twenty twenty one sucked for <laughs> losses, personal losses, and just the overall trajectory of the year in so many ways. And I was really afraid to say, like, I'm so glad this year is over because you know that some shit is going to happen. And literally, <laughs> like in the final hours. I of know. 2021, we get the news that Betty White has passed. And you can't be shocked when someone's 99, you know. But, no. but it was like, God damn it, 2021, come on, man. Yeah, because we were, I mean, obviously the universe was ready to celebrate her 100th birthday because everybody's been posting the People magazine cover. Right. It was probably at the printers when she passed. Yeah. So they didn't have time to retract it or redo it. But so I, I was did, bummed about that, and I do like yeah. I do like her, and I really, especially even though I'm not a huge Golden Girls person, I I loved what she I loved did. I, Mary on Mary Tyler on Moore, Mary Tyler Moore, and Lou. She was in Lou Grant too, right? Or not? It was just Mary Tyler Moore. I'm I'm I know she was in Mary Tyler Moore. I'm not sure she followed into. Well, the Lou next Grant one. ended up being a drama, so I'm just gonna say no. Right? Maybe not. But um, yeah, we lost Ed Asner last year too, didn't we? Yeah. God, yeah. It's... He was one that I thought we already had. I was like, oh, wait, he was alive? I was like, no, because oh, he was, he was like, he was doing, he was, he was in a fucking episode of like something recently in a wheelchair. 
like oh. la- like last year or i think he probably taped you know that the show was probably 2020 so he okay. was working like was right up until the, the end. end that's cool yeah but um, no she was cool and i think that she just betty white brought so much joy to people like in, in her later years just like she was just funny as hell yeah. and just kind of a, an internet personality too like people just kind of like to make memes about her and stuff and, and how they got her how she ended up on saturday hosting saturday night live right popular demand <laughs> yeah that was amazing i was very impressed with that so yeah so i have to say she's my she's my favorite of those folks um, okay i know. i also i really liked beatrice arthur in many many things and she was the voice of Femputer on fi- on Futurama. I have to throw that geeky, stupid thing in oh, there. Oh, that's cool. That's very <laughs> cool. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> wow. So anyway, thank you for the question, Anne. Yes. And, uh, we will. We always answer your questions in this segment. So, like, send us your questions and we got answers. <laughs> <laughs> so we need to sign off now. Thank you for joining us. I'm Robin Renee, and you can find me on Facebook at Robin Renee Fan, on Instagram at Robin Renee Music, and on Twitter at Spirit Rock Sexy. And if you're on Discord or travel in the uh, Church of the Subgenius circles, you can find me out on the web as Andrew Genus. And I'm Wendy Sheridan, and you can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Wendy Cards on Twitter at Wendy Designs, and on Etsy at Wendy Cards with a Z. On Discord, I'm Vox Woman. All right. <laughs> and remember, you can always, always reach out to us on social media at Lepscape and send us your questions. And until next time, be well, stay safe, and keep left. You've been listening to the Leftscape Podcast. Sound engineering by Wendy Sheridan. Show notes by Robin Renee. Fake sponsor messages by Ariel Sheridan. Web hosting by InMotion. Remote recording by Squadcast. If you like what you hear, please share it with your friends. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Leftscape. Become a patron of our show for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash Leftscape. Thanks for listening. <laughs>